This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan. This is episode 23, the first, first crusade. Today, we jump around a bit. We start off in the Iberian Peninsula, a place much forgotten in our Western educations, but one that holds secrets to one of the ultimate events of the entire Middle Ages. Iberia is a fascinating place with a fascinating history, and we begin there around the 920s, with the Emir of Cordoba declaring himself caliph over the entire Islamic world thus vowing to unseat the current caliph in Baghdad, which was at the time the single greatest center of learning in the medieval Western world, eclipsing even Constantinople, which, as we've learned, wouldn't see their mini-Renaissance until Basil II, almost a century later. This simple yet bold pronouncement shook not only the Islamic world, but also seemed to jolt Christian Europe out of their Dark Ages stupor. In this episode, we will seek to do a couple of things. We will be introduced to the tumultuous century leading up to La Reconquista in the Iberian Peninsula, giving it a full context for future episodes on the subject. And we will see the first arc of another Norman family story in the early 11th century. It's a big episode for sure. I hope you enjoy the show. The Iberian Peninsula is another ancient land that had seen as many centuries of violence as it's seen peace over its couple thousand years of recorded history. And during the Middle Ages, this was a pattern that continued. Its first inhabitants recorded their own existence in places like El Castillo Cave, where they painted their world on its walls nearly 40,000 years before the time period we're going to spend some time on here on this episode. Culturally, this place is about as diverse as they come. From chilly, wind-swept Galicia, settled by Celts in the north, to its sunny southern coasts, changing hands between the Phoenicians, Greeks, Romans, and Carthaginians. This place pretty much has it all. The Romans called this far western region of the known world Hispania, and they were desperate to bring the area under their direct control due to its rich reserves and valuable minerals such as salt, zinc, lead, and silver in its north, and copper deposits and gold veins in its south. Its central plains and hills are fertile enough for centuries of vineyards and olive groves. After the Romans were the invading Germanic peoples called the Swabians and the Vandals, And a couple of centuries later came the powerful Visigoths, who not only spread throughout Iberia, uniting the various kingdoms and city-states of their predecessors, but also crossed the Strait of Gibraltar, the seven-mile-wide gap between Europe and Africa, and then curled themselves eastward along the Mediterranean coast as far as Carthage, or modern-day Tunis, 
the capital of Tunisia. Throughout all of this, each invading force made a crucial decision to assimilate the existing cultures into their own, intensifying this overall culture of tolerance. This area was largely isolated from Europe proper by the Pyrenees Mountains, that quite literally acted as a geologic barrier between the Frankish lands to the northeast and the various groups on the peninsula. So they were, except for the periodic invasions by outsiders, free to evolve on their own. One such invasionary force that made one of the largest impacts on the peninsula were the Berbers. Berbers were a collective name for various Saharan African groups. They had made the conversion to Islam a century or so earlier, and after a slow migration across the strait into Iberia, they eventually established a Muslim presence on the southern two-thirds of the region, leaving the northern Christian kingdoms and city-states to continue in a weakened, disunited state. When in 755 a lone survivor of the assassinated ruling family of the Umayyad dynasty showed up in Cordoba in south-central Iberia, a land at this point being called Al-Andalus, having secretly traveled from Damascus across a very hostile northern Africa all alone, well, he was about to change history in more ways than one. See, this man's mother was a Berber woman brought back, to, brought back west to Damascus in order to unite the farthest reaches of Islam with its center. From Maria Rosa Menical's phenomenal book, Ornament of the World, she writes about this man, whose name was Abid al-Rahman. He, she writes, quote, was in many ways the quintessential Arab, the heir and descendant of the desert warriors, who were the companions of the prophet himself, and yet he was no less a Berber, the child of one of their own tribeswomen, end quote. Abd al-Rahman, the last vestige of the Umayyad Caliphate in the east, demanded a place at the head of Cordoba in order to re-establish his Umayyad dynasty firmly at the top of the Islamic pecking order. Well, the current emir wouldn't give up so easily, though he most definitely knew his defiance was short-lived. Menekal continues later, quote, Abd al-Rahman assembled forces loyal to him, Syrians and Berbers combined, and one day in May 756, a battle just outside the city walls of Cordoba decisively changed the face of European history and culture. Abd al-Rahman easily defeated this would-be father-in-law and became the new governor of this westernmost province of the Islamic world. End quote. Cordoba would continue to dominate the peninsula's power structure for the next 150 years continuing to not only secure its borders, but also to enrich the lives of its citizens by tirelessly setting about civic improvement projects like irrigation systems, city walls, and safer roads from city to city. Most notably, though, Al-Rahman's Cordoba would increasingly set about creating one of the most inclusive and tolerant communities in all of human history. The New Abbasid Caliphate shortly after murdering the entire Umayyad ruling family, moved the center of the Islamic world from Damascus to Baghdad, which had become the preeminent cultural and academic center of the Islamic world. But by the early 10th century, Cordoba was itself a city to be reckoned with. Cordoba and its surrounding cities, towns, and villages were a bastion for learning 
and cultural interaction and cooperation. In Europe, Jews and Muslims alike were simply not accepted into the mainstream body politic. But in Cordoba, Jews were tolerated, if not fully accepted, as valuable members of society. Many notable scholars from this period were Jewish, in fact, and were trusted in some of the highest positions in the community. One Jewish scholar named Hazdai Ibn Shaprut, born in 915, just a few years before Cordoba's future would take an enormous leap forward, grew up around other well-to-do established Jewish families, as well as Muslims, Christians, Berbers, Slavic and Irish slaves, as well as natives. Hazdai Ibn Shaprut would one day become a respected physician, mathematician, and philosopher, and would earn the position of vizier, or highest counsel, to the caliph himself. How can such a diverse population achieve such a peaceful status, especially in what amounted to nothing short of a theocracy? See, even today, Jews and Christians are considered al-al-kitab, people of the book. It was a leading tenet of Islam to extend the olive branch to other people who derived their faith from the teachings of the Quran. In this case of Judaism, God revealed himself to prophets such as Abraham, Moses, and others, whom Muslims also hold in extremely high regard. As for Christians, God revealed himself to Jesus of Nazareth, another prophet, according to the Muslim faith. This idea of al-al-kitab was what allowed unification on a civic level, and as for faith, at the very least, it offered an understanding that at the core of all three groups was the same center point, just as three concentric circles also share a common center point. Christians and Jews alike were allowed to live in the area and learn and produce works of immense intellectual weight, but Muslims reigned supreme, and as long as everyone stayed within the boundaries of Muslim custom and decree, they could worship and live as they chose. And this foundational idea of Abd al-Rahman's Andalusia would only, straighten, would only strengthen into the 10th century. By the 920s, Cordoba found itself in the same conversation as other major centers of learning and influence around the Mediterranean, such as Alexandria, Constantinople, and for argument's sake, we'll just include Baghdad in there too, as it was the leading cultural center of the Islamic world with strong ties to the Holy Land and North Africa and Constantinople, as well as being an emerging kingdom to the, as all the other kingdoms to the east. But it would catapult itself through the actions of, it, of Abd al-Rahman's grandson, the not very originally named Abd al-Rahman III, Boldly and defiantly, Abd al-Rahman proclaimed Cordoba and Andalusia as the new center of Islam, and himself its new caliph. Taking stock of his Iberian home, he expressly stated his intent to unseat Baghdad as its cultural and academic beating heart, and sent ambassadors far and wide throughout the African, Islamic, Eastern Roman, and European worlds, setting up trade networks, civil dialogue, and academic communication. In the ensuing decades, Cordoba would just about achieve Abid al-Rahman III's vision, too, also seeing the Jewish Hazdai Ibn Shaprut promoted to his chief advisor, as I've said. In Menachal's Ornament of the World, she says, quote, By the time Abid al-Rahman III was caliph and Hazdai his vizier, 
learned Jews and Muslims and Christians alike had made Cordoba as serious a contender as Baghdad, perhaps more so for the title of most civilized place on earth. End quote. That is as much a pronouncement of Muslim civility during the 10th century as it is a denunciation of the Christian world throughout Europe. It really was a golden age for Andalusia, under the governorship of Abd al-Rahman III. In fact, just after, or after just a couple decades, according to Menachal, Cordoba would not only have, obviously, a Muslim caliph, but also a Jewish vizier to the caliph and a Christian bishop named Rasamundo as a figurehead in the caliph's diplomatic representation in Constantinople. Menachal continues, quote, Half a dozen years later, in 955, the bishop known in Arabic as Rabbi Ibn Zaid would end up as the caliph's envoy to the court of Otto I, where he would meet the nun, Hroswitha, and give her the materials for both, of, both her life of the Mozarab martyr Pelagius and her enduring description of Cordoba's marvels. End quote. But what does that mean? her endearing description of Cordova's marvels. Well, it was a Christian nun in Germany, Hroswitha, who penned not only the title of Menachal's book, but also the nickname of Cordoba itself, the Ornament of the World. In Cordoba, as well as Baghdad, to be fair, a culture of learning was paramount to a culture of homogeneity. It's that simple. Constantinople had sparks of that as well during the, the Middle Ages, but it had come on the backs of those same purges centuries earlier that toppled massive marble statues and burned to ashes ancient Greek and Roman tomes that are sadly now lost to time. And these Eastern Romans only felt comfortable entertaining those silly pagans of the past when it was clear that paganism was a thing of the past, when paganism was was more of a punchline than a serious conversation. We today have Muslims to thank for not only saving these classics for future generations, but also for reviving them, not Christians who have grudgingly come to accept them. Because learning was strictly frowned upon in those early Christian centuries, massive purges were held as well as murderous frenzies by believers in Christ terrorized the, the Holy Land and beyond. Two examples of this are seen with an early church leader named John Chrysostom, who once preached that, quote, a comprehended God is no God at all, end quote. And Christian terrorists once pulled the incredibly intelligent and beautiful polymath and philosopher Hypatia of Alexandria from her horse, dragged her to the ground, did unspeakable acts to her before skinning her alive and then lighting her on fire. Books were kept in secret by Greeks, Romans, Egyptians, and Jews from Antioch to Athens, Rome to Jerusalem, and Cairo to Baghdad. And very few statues and temples survived too. Christians either brought pillars and walls of temples crumbling down, or they converted them to churches after gutting them of their riches and murdering their adherents. As for statues that made it through the centuries-long purge, ignorance was really the main reason, this being the same ignorance these same Christians were willing to murder for. Case in point, Constantine the Great, the famous Roman emperor who moved the Roman Empire's capital to Constantinople and declared Christianity the official religion of the empire, was often portrayed astride a horse wearing simple imperial toga. Well, so was an earlier pagan emperor, 
named Marcus Aurelius, the man we know of today as the ultimate philosopher king and author of a Stoic handbook, his personal journals now called Meditations. The equestrian statue of Marcus Aurelius, as it's come to be called, is now in the Capitoline Museum on Capitoline Hill in Rome. If only early Christians paid attention in class, or even gone to class in the first place, they could have erased this piece of Roman and philosophical history too. So back to Cordoba in the early 960s. Upon the death of, the, of Caliph Abid al-Rahman III, Cordoba was headed by the Caliph's son, al-Hakam II, who found peace with the Christian kingdoms to the north through the 970s. He leveraged this peaceful time to embark on enormous civil projects, increasing the agricultural output of the surrounding farms with new irrigation systems. This, in turn, freed up more agricultural workers from the fields, who then were encouraged by their caliph to create more markets to sell goods and services. Well, these new services were then in high demand, so so a new labor force quickly evolved naturally around these needs. And before Al-Hakam II's death in 976 at the age of 61, southern Iberia was more than just a flash in the pan. The Cordoba Caliphate was quickly emerging as not only the leader of the Muslim world, but also of the entire European landscape. But see, this is where the cult of personality can be truly detrimental to long-term success. We see this just about everywhere in history, as well as today, and it begs the question, why do we put so much faith in a person and not in a system? Well, this, of course, is the fundamental change in politics we would see in the American Revolution some 775 years later, after the death of a golden generation of Andalusians. A person always dies, but a system can endure. Just as the story of Benjamin Franklin goes, when asked what they've created inside the Philadelphia courthouse in 1789, he remarks, a republic, if you can keep it. So people die, but systems can endure because ideas endure. They transfer from generation to generation, and a solid system can keep everyone, generation after generation, within the boundaries of acceptable expectations. The power of an idea is far more valuable than the power of a person. Yet, when Al-Hakam II died, his son took over, and he was simply too young. A man named Al-Mansur ibn Abi Amir, or Al-Manzor as he is known to the West, was given power until Al-Hashim II, the young caliph in question here, was old enough. The problem was, once, given, once power is given, it's rarely given back, which is why we should always be diligent in who we give power to. Al-Manzor quickly eroded the peaceful relations with Christian León, Castile, and Navarre, as well as taxing his agricultural and commercial industries close to economic suffocation. This was, as it usually is, to line his own pockets, as well as to run raids into Christian territories, seeking to weaken their defenses. With tensions high on, their, on the northern borders, Almanzor decided to strike at the heart of Iberian Christianity. In the far northwestern corner of the peninsula was the Kingdom of Galicia, and in this kingdom lay an incredibly wealthy pilgrimage site that spoke to Christians all over Christendom. This was Santiago de Compostela, 
a church that housed the cult of St. James the Apostle. In 968, the same Viking fleet led by Gunrith, who aided Duke Richard I of Normandy against a possible invasion by King Lothar I of the Franks, well, he went south on a rumor of a fabulously wealthy church in Iberia. Gunrith's attack was devastating, but the city and its holy site recovered quickly, and it wasn't long before it resumed its status as a focal point of the whole faith. Almanzor, having already weakened these kingdoms in the previous years, decided, in 997, to cut the jugular. He led a raid on Santiago de Compostela, which once again caused massive devastation and loss of life. But symbolically, it cut far deeper. Almanzor ordered the huge bells of the church to be captured and brought back to Cordoba, and were then recycled into huge candelabras for the city's major mosque. Remember this, as this little tidbit will come back into the conversation later. But what Almanzor failed to recognize was what he was doing was actually inviting his, as well as the entire Muslim presence in Iberia, ultimate downfall. When he began his raids on his northern adversaries, his lines began thinning out naturally after each battle or skirmish. He was then forced to solicit outside help. This came in the form of Berber mercenaries from northern Africa. The problem was, as Cordoba had become wealthier and wealthier in their prosperity, they'd also drifted further from the simplicity of a faithful life outlined during a simpler time centuries earlier. Berbers were largely poor nomads who congregated only in certain parts of the year, though many Berbers did settle in larger permanent communities while still keeping a simpler lifestyle. When these mercenaries witnessed firsthand the incredible wealth of the Cordoba Caliphate, as well as the acceptance of Jews and Christians in society, well, their resentment boiled to the surface. The 1000s saw succession crisis after succession crisis once Almanzor died, and at the same time, Muslim Berbers began sacking Andalusian cities and fortresses, thus weakening its defenses. This was, as you can see, a lot at play in this part of Europe. And it only gets more and more complicated, so I'll try to explain it as simply as I can, though I encourage you to find other resources and learn more if this episode of Medieval History interests you. It's fascinating stuff, really. A man named Suleiman ibn al-Hakam took advantage of a pretty chaotic situation in 1009. Almanzor's predecessor, al-Hisham II, was once again the caliph. Al-Hisham II was also warring with a man named Muhammad II, who then imprisoned the caliph. While Abd al-Rahman Sanchuelo was off fighting in León, Suleiman gathered a strong force consisting of Berbers and other European slaves in the area, and made a secret deal with the Count of Castile, which made it easier for Suleiman to travel through Castile and surprise Muhammad II in León at Alcolea. With Muhammad II hiding out in the city-state of Toledo, Suleiman allowed Cordoba to be sacked by his men. He was soon voted caliph by his troops. Well, at this point, Muhammad II mustered up another force and reached out to Count Ramon Borel of the county of Barcelona for a temporary alliance. In 1010, Muhammad II was defeated. Cordoba was sacked again, but his own mercenaries killed him. 
Al-Hisham II once again was freed from prison and given the title of caliph. All of this came crashing down, once again, when Suleiman took back Cordoba in 1013. But after this, he was really only recognized as caliph in and around Cordoba. And most of that, you can imagine, was a forced recognition by the beaten and demoralized populace. Besides, by 1016, he was beheaded. This period in Andalusian history is called the Fitna of Cordoba, and it would last officially from 1009 to 1031, and it's during these two decades that we now pick up our story. But this part doesn't start off on the peninsula at all. No, we have to cross back over the Pyrenees to the northeast, make a slight left turn, and head straight north to the English Channel. Here we return to a small but powerful duchy within the Kingdom of France. This part of our story begins, that's right, in Normandy. Around the time that the highly successful heir of Caliph Abid al-Rahman III was securing peace on his northern borders and strengthening al-Andalus's internal infrastructure, we have our first glimpses of a family coming to the fore in Normandy. Sometime in the 960s, the House of Tosny began, with simple strategic maneuvering by the French Archbishop of Rouen, named Hugh, who had two problems. One, an eastern border with Frisia and France, that weren't exactly kind to their Norman neighbors. And two, an unruly little brother, a monk at the Abbey of Saint-Denis named Raoul, who, well, he just wasn't the monk type. Archbishop Hugh decided to take care of both problems with one decision. If he could find someone to live nearby who might act as a deterrent to Frisian and Frankish raids, then maybe that would help bolster the security on that nearby border. Raoul, which, fun side note, is a derivative of the noteworthy Norse name Rollo, and a precursor to today's Ralph. See, Raoul took control of a castle near Tosny, which was a village down the River Seine a little ways southeast of Rouen. And he was exactly the type of personality needed for the job. Though Raoul would never reach the status of even count, he held the same rank as his cross-duchy counterpart, Tancred de Hauteville. But it's recorded that Raoul I of Tosny, as he came to be known, was at that fateful meeting in 991 between Duke Richard I of Normandy and King Ethelred II of England when they agreed to cut off Viking access to Normandy's ports along the English Channel. It was clear that Raoul had earned the respect and trust of the Dukes of Normandy in the preceding decades as Seigneur of Tosny to be invited to to be in that attendance at such event. By 1013, his son, Roger of Tosny, born in 990, and he were manning the defenses at another Tosny castle in nearby Tillier, when something lost to time forced both men into exile by Duke Richard II. It was here when the two men, identified in so many regards, especially those regarding bravery, individualistic tendencies, quarrelsomeness, and ruthlessness, split up and went their separate ways. Raoul of Tosny. Well, the next time we see him, he's fighting alongside the Drangos, another Norman noble family curiously exiled at the same time as the Tosnys. He's in Apulia against whoever didn't pay him enough, or fighting against whoever didn't pay him enough. And he was apparently earning serious bank there, too. 
In fact, one can make the claim, though there is little evidence to support it, that Raoul was one of Ranulf Drango's acquaintances on his trip to the Holy Land, and stopped with him at the shrine of the Archangel Michael near Foggia, Italy in 1015. Who knows for sure, really, but it's interesting to think about. The records seem to suggest seem to suggest it, even if it might not be true. Roger of Tosni, however, took a different path than his father. While Raoul of Tosni sought wealth and fame in southern Italy, Roger went in a completely different direction, figuratively and literally, actually. Assuming this was true, Raoul went as a Christian ambassador of peace to Muslim-held lands, while Roger went as a Christian ambassador of war to Muslim-held lands. With the attack on and looting of Santiago de Compostela in 997, the frequent raids against the Christian kingdoms of Portugal, Galicia, León, Castile, Aragon, Navarre, and Barcelona had been sending messages to any and every Christian kingdom, as well as the Pope, for help in pushing back their southern Muslim neighbors. Stop for a moment and think about that. We're told that Pope Urban II in 1097 called for the first religious war, or crusade, against Muslims, which was culminated in the first crusade in 1099. However, one could certainly make the case that Pope Urban II merely called for a second crusade on the centennial anniversary of the Muslim attack on Santiago de Compostela. Christian kings across Iberia were calling for assistance in fighting Muslims as early as the 1010s. Could this be history's first official crusade there on the Iberian Peninsula? Well, the matter's still up for debate, but it's certainly a thought-provoking idea. When Roger of Tosni heard the call for European knights to aid Christian Barcelona, specifically, against further Muslim attacks on their southern border, he, ever the adventurous, hot-headed descendant of Vikings, Well, he couldn't resist to scratch the itch of testing fate. As he said his farewell to his father, Roger of Tosni probably couldn't have left Normandy fast enough. Roger couldn't have been much more than 25 years old when he headed southwest toward the Pyrenees. On his way south, he was able to see the kingdom in which he served as a minor noble. He passed through the Duchy of Aquitaine first, and then passed through either the Duchy of Gascony to the west on the southern border of the Pyrenees, or the county of Toulouse in the middle. Most likely, heading almost straight south from Normandy, Roger probably passed through Toulouse on his way to Barcelona, which was straight south from there. No doubt he also enjoyed the company of a small band of Norman knights he'd collected along the way, but there is a chance he was joined by other Frankish knights in search of similar opportunities in Iberia. European Christians had made serious attempts at the peninsula for over a century, but between skirmishes with pagan locals, battles with those from Cordoba, and Viking raids making inroads into Muslim-held central Iberia was next to impossible. That, and like any group, these Christians also splintered into varying kingdoms, those of León, as we've mentioned, León, Castile, Navarre, Galicia, Portugal, Aragon, and Barcelona though it seemed León was the biggest kid on the block there. These kingdoms hugged the northern coast of the peninsula and weren't exactly the kindest to each other, but they all shared one common enemy, Cordoba. When Roger of Tosni finally reached Countess Ermesinde of Barcelona, 
who was originally from a noble family in France's Carcassonne region. It was she who had made the most recent calls for help as her husband, Count Ramon Borel, had recently passed away, and she hadn't remarried yet. Well, he made quick work of the negotiations, as you can imagine. With his contingent of knights, he promised to rid her lands of the Muslim threat in exchange for the countess's daughter's hand in marriage. Estefania was his bride's name, and as far as I found, she bore him no children. However, his union with her proved far more valuable than children. She opened up the financial reserves to him. Well, to an extent, of course, as the county was still not his. As well as giving him access to the military might of the countess's forces. With this, Roger of Tosny's legend would really begin. While his father Raoul of Tosny was most likely returning from the Holy Land with the Drango brothers, as mentioned earlier, stopping to see the famous pagan-turned-Christian shrine and, and then being offered a lucrative deal with the Lombards from Salerno, while that was happening, Roger of Tosny married into the Iberian nobility and amassed a stout army of skilled knights to secure the border of his new home. The year was probably 1015, and Iberia, as we've learned already, was just getting started with that, with that fitna of Cordoba. This essentially was the reaction to two major things we've covered so far in this episode. Almanzor's disastrous foreign policy decisions, and his mercenary Berbers rebelling against the materialism ever-present throughout the peaceful caliphate. Muslim Iberia was collapsing. Resources were beginning to wane. Political power was crumbling as quickly as the walls of fortresses brought down by the Berbers. And Christian kings and counts in the area, well, they were starting to amass their own forces and licking their chops at the dying giant to their south. By 1015, major movement had recently occurred around the peninsula too. In the northern third, as we know, were the Christian states of Portugal, Galicia, León, Castile, Navarre, and various other smaller counties and marquisats, though the one we want to pay attention to here is Barcelona. South of them were the fractured Muslim city-states of Al-Andalus, and this is what's kind of new here. This is what's happened since about 1013. And remember, just a generation earlier, these were proud members of a prominent and prosperous Cordoba Caliphate. When Roger of Tosni crossed the Pyrenees, the most prominent city-states, called Taifas, were Zaragoza in the northeast, Valencia on the eastern coast, Denia, Mercia, and Almeria south of that, Granada in south-central Iberia, Cordoba in the south-southwest of the peninsula, though Cordoba was split up uh, throughout its territory by a handful of smaller taifas inside of it. Badajoz on the Atlantic coast, where the nation of Portugal sits today, and finally the juggernaut, right smack in the middle, was the taifa of Toledo. Cordoba was effectively finished by 1015 or so, having been destroyed from within, which unfortunately is a pattern we still see in our own homelands today. And it was this that ultimately brought Al-Rahman III's dream of a tolerant Muslim ornament of the world to its knees, and softened it up for the likes of Roger of Tosni to wreak havoc along its northeastern borderlands. This was the world Roger of Tosni crossed into, married into, and eventually left. That's right. It's interesting how a man like Roger 
an exile and adventurous ruffian would feel compelled to return to the land that expelled him a few years earlier. But he did. He left, but not before making himself a legend, one that he probably enjoyed having, knowing what little we know about him, but one that would send shivers down a friend and foe alike. It's simple, really, because we don't really have many resources from this time about his travels, but word spread throughout Muslim Iberia of a Christian knight who was a fierce warrior, having dominated the Zaragozan threat to Barcelona South. Zaragoza was quelled quickly, but it wasn't that that made Roger of Tosni a legend. In fact, legend isn't quite the word that applies here. Uh, More like um, a Grimm's fairy tale one would tell to one's children to keep them in line. To Muslims everywhere in the region, Roger of Tosni was, well, he was a boogeyman of sorts. See, it's said that when he conquered a Muslim force, he would have one proud Muslim warrior step forward on behalf of his comrades and his faith. When the man did so, Roger himself would take his sharpest sword and slice the man into two halves. One half was roasted and enjoyed by himself and his men. The other half, well, if needed, it was forcefully fed to the prisoners. And to use psychological warfare to his advantage, it's said that Roger of Tosny would, I say with quotations, accidentally allow a few prisoners to escape so that they may spread the tales of such barbarity, so that they may spread the tales of Roger's nickname, the Moor Eater. Roger's stay in Barcelona was a short one in the end. His wife, Estefania, died from unknown causes in 1018, though it's likely from childbirth given the time frame. And a few years later, in 1024, with Zaragoza cowed, he snuck back across the Pyrenees the moment he heard that Duke Richard II of Normandy had revoked the expulsion. He didn't just return a wealthy and powerful Norman knight, though. He returned a living legend. He was restored to Tosny and its castles in the area and made himself at home once again. His father also returned that year, but by 1026, Raoul himself had died, having also enriched the prestige of the House of, no- House of Tosny with his exploits in southern Italy. Between 1024 and 1025, Roger married Gotalina. Now, I've seen records of Gotalina being another daughter of Ermesinda of Barcelona, but there are also other reports saying she was the daughter of another prominent Norman nobleman. Either way, it seems that Roger of Tosny was actually a happy man in this marriage. In 1027, Gotalina fell very ill, though. So ill, in fact, that her family had made the trip to Tosny Castle and was planning her funeral. It's also said that Roger was absolutely heartbroken at the thought of losing her, which plays against the legend of the Moor Eater. But there was a whisper of a cure. See, a bishop was passing through in 1027 when he mentioned miracles happening at a shrine in the large, influential, central duchy of Aquitaine at a place called St. Foy. A virgin martyr's relic had been the impossible, or had been making the impossible happen recently. Roger, being a very wealthy man by this time, sent at once for the relic to come to Tosny Castle. As soon as they brought the relic in the room, Gotalina, it said, 
instantly woke up for the first time in weeks. She was confused as to why everyone was gathered around her bed and crying. Roger spared no expense on the day's long celebrations, and then set about funding a shrine to St. Foy to be built there in nearby Conche. Between 1028 and 1035, Roger built an abbey there in Conche that still survives today, called Saint-Pierre de Castillon. During this time, there are records of the Moor Eater making appearances in Iberia, but nothing from the Norman records indicate that he left that I can find anyway, which makes his legend even more curious. We do know his Tosni blood boiled every so often due to minor skirmishes and arguments he would get into with his own Norman neighbors. But as we know, Normandy, by 1035, well, it was coming to a fever pitch, having been quelled for so long, and then, of course, the loss of their their, uh, duke, who'd kept him in line for all that time. He must have seen the writing on the wall, though, because he would continue to strengthen his castle's uh, defenses during this period. Two, namely those at Tosny and nogent le roy As we continue this little chapter in Norman history, you'll want to keep a close eye on Roger of Tosny. There is a reason he was strengthening, strengthening his defenses. There was a reason he was pushing and shoving his neighbors around. He had seen what softening up an opponent can do when the fight really breaks out. Roger will play a role in the coming years as Normandy navigates his way through an unprecedented succession crisis, as a young boy turns into a duke. Never, though, take your eye off a Tosni, because you can be sure he won't take his eyes off of you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on another Norman Knight's quest for greatness. It seems to be a pattern with these Normans, isn't it? If it isn't given, it must be sought after and taken. They provide, a, they provide a great framework for personal growth. However, to be clear, everything in moderation, especially when taking advice from a Norman. Please keep sharing this podcast with those you know in your social media accounts. Don't forget to tag us too if you share us on Twitter, at Wheel Podcast, or drop a quick line about the latest episode on Facebook, Fortune's Wheel Podcast. Also, you can email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com, and please consider supporting the show on Patreon if you are so inclined. On the next episode, we continue learning about these rambunctious Normans and how their actions have arguably the largest impact on how events played out leading all the way up to our present world. From France to Kiev, Constantinople to Barcelona, England to Sicily, and Jerusalem to Rome, these Normans just don't stop their steady march toward immortality. Listen, I deviated from the plan already by straying from the Hopevilles to introduce this other Norman family, so I can't really tell you which story I want to tell you next, but I can pretty much guarantee it'll follow another Norman who just can't resist the spotlight. No matter what it ends up being, I can't wait to tell you about it.